Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth and thank you for joining me. Let's pick up where we left off in the book of 2 Chronicles. We're up to chapter 6. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. So now um, Solomon is King David, same David and Goliath, David's son. He's in power now. Um, Lord here is all in all capitals letters. So it lets you know it's in this instance, it's being translated from the word or name Jehovah. Um, and now if you see with the quotations just before the Lord said, um, it's this, it's, um, it's now give, basically giving us a quote of what Solomon was saying. And none of this is red letters, so Jesus isn't saying any of this stuff, but it is scripture because it's in the Bible. Verse 2, I've surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. So um, here Solomon is dedicating this temple that he just built um, to God, basically. And he's this is his speech that he's giving um, as he's um, as it's being opened up. And the thing about it is, you see, it says forever. That means forever. Yet we know it isn't forever because that temple ends up getting uh, destroyed and then replaced and then destroyed again. So um, forever doesn't mean forever. Um, just because it's in the Bible and just because somebody in the Bible says it, it's not red letters, but it's just um, what Solomon is saying in his dedication. Verse 3, then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. So now it's like a public address that Solomon is given to the crowd. Verse 4, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, so now Solomon is saying, praise God for completing the prophecy, fulfilling the prophecy that was given to David, his father. And now he's going to give us what that prophecy was with verse 5. Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. So he's reflecting back on the time when the people were interacting with what they're calling their Lord or their God. Um, and a speech that was given to them back when they were thinking about making uh, what we think of as a church, a place of worship for the Lord to dwell in and interact with the people in. And how before it was like, thanks, but no thanks was sort of the response they were getting from God, and I'm just going to say God from her on out because that's how they are identifying the entity they're interacting with and dedicating it all to whether we believe it's God Almighty or not. And I only say that because if you've read with me before, you know that Jesus tells us otherwise about people having heard from God and definitely having seen God. And those are things that have not happened, um, at least to the time of Jesus' ministry. But that's just so you understand where we're at with how we're going to address these as we read on. Verse 6. Um, Yet yeah, I've chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. So um, it's reflecting back on the time when David was sort of chosen as the new king instead of the first king that was chosen, Saul, who had become rejected. Not the same Saul who later changed his name to Paul, but uh, saw way before then, the first human king of the tribes. Verse 7, now it was 
in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. So Solomon is reflecting back on the time when David first had the idea of building, or at least expressed the idea of building a temple to God, um, and how that went. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 8, For the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. So the way um, the Lord gently rejected David's offer of building a temple to the Lord, the Lord said it was enough that it was in your heart. It was enough for you to think about doing it. Thanks, but no thanks. Verse 9, nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, shall will, your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So that was the prophecy that David, although it was nice for him to think of building the temple, it's not for him to build the temple, it's for his son Solomon to do it. Verse 10, so the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I fill the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. So Solomon is saying that he's fulfilled the prophecies that were given to David and that he was told his son would build the temple instead of him. And now his son Solomon has built the temple instead of him. Verse 11. And there I put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. So when we last read about the ark of the covenant, the same one referred to in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. The last that we read about it, the only thing that was contained in it at this point were the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The jar of manna weren't mentioned as being in it, and Aaron's rod, I don't think it was even mentioned as being in it last time we read it. Um, verse 12, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. So now Solomon is about to give a public address to the crowd and say, verse 13, for Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long five cubits wide and three cubits high and had set it in the midst of the court and he stood on it knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven so Solomon has built a platform to uh, for this purpose and that's what he's doing he's doing a public prayer basically and dedication of everyone collectively praising God for the new temple Verse 14, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. So Solomon is praising God for being faithful to the covenant of being faithful to those who are faithful to that entity. Verse 15, you've kept what, what you promised your servant David, my father. You've both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So again, um, David is, uh, Solomon is talking about the different prophecies that were given before he even built the temple um, by God through the different prophets and things. But in some cases, when we read them, they seem to be direct conversations that people were having with God. And those instances contradict what Jesus himself tells us in the New Testament about people not... Uh, when he was addressed, when he addressed the crowds, then they neither heard God's voice at any time nor seen his form. Um, and then no one has seen the Father except he who came down from heaven, meaning Jesus. 
so that regardless of what preachers will tell us in modern times or what preachers believe back then, um, those were not necessarily messages directly from God that people were getting, though they were treated as divine instances and messages and interactions with God. Um, verse 16, therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only in your sons, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk in my law as you fought before me. So the, the promise, the prophecy, the agreement, the covenant was between David and his descendants after him forever, as long as they were faithful to the covenant and faithful to the same God as David has off and on been, but being accounted as being faithful to. Verse 17, and now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David. So Solomon is praying that the prophecy given David, his father, comes true. Verse 18, but will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I built. So Solomon is recognizing, although that the temple was erected, built to give praise and a dwelling place for God and for people to get close to and interact with God, he's recognizing that there's no structure man-made or otherwise that would actually be able to contain the presence of God Almighty. Verse 19, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord, my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you. So part of Solomon's dedication of prayer of the temple is that God hears the prayers made um, by himself uh, there in that temple. Verse 20, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So Solomon is praying that the place be solemn in God's eyes and then always be special and the prayers made there be get special attention from God as part of the covenant made. Verse 21, and may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So Solomon is praying that the temple itself act as sort of an intermediary between God and people, the congregation, as a sort of touchstone for people to contact God when forgiveness is what's needed. And Solomon is praying and asking that the temple be in service, in use for such that for that service to act as the point the people can reach out to even praying toward it in reaching out to God and being heard and their prayer being answered, their supplication being answered affirmatively. Verse 22, if anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple. So Jesus tells us we are not to take oaths at all as Christians, um, but let our yes be yes and our no, no, whatever is more than that is from the evil one. In Matthew, Jesus tells us Christians that yet other parts of the Bible talk about taking oaths. Parts of society ask you to take oaths. You can do that. Um, 
It's your choice, free will option. But in doing that, you're doing anti-Christian behavior. There are ways, as we talked about, to affirm that you'll do something without swearing to do something, whether it's marriage or a, a court, you know, taking the stand. Um, and yet people don't do that and still say they're God-fearing Christians. Um, but back to where we're at with the oaths here. Solomon is talking about the instances when people do take oaths. And in some cases, the oath can be as simple as entering a contract with someone, whether it's a marriage contract or some sort of business contract. That's an oath. And um, he's saying when you're making those agreements, those binding agreements, verse 23, then hear from heaven and act. And judge your servants, bringing ret uh, retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head. And just to find the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. By giving to the righteous, bringing to the righteous righteousness in accordance with what we've done. And paying back in uh, distributing the wickedness on the wicked who are guilty of what they are guilty of. In that sense, you see it seemed, how it seems like sometimes people escape or outrun the wicked seeds they've sown as they crop up. And yet you see how unavoidable, unavoidable it is at times. Um, like Jesus gives us the example of the people who are crushed with the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed them. Or the people who were persecuted by the government and ended up, ended up dying that way that they weren't worse sinners than any other people that are out there. But instead, the thing to take notice of is that they weren't repentant. That in walking in an unrepentant life, that calamity can sneak up on you suddenly, it's gonna be gone, and not have taken advantage of the opportunity to self-examine, reflect on our own actions, see where we're wrong and apologize for them and seek forgiveness for them while we have the state of mind and life to be able to do it. And you see how even now there's um, that famous Republican politician as corrupt and wicked as so many of the things he's endorsed have been over the decades because he's been in power for decades. Even taking water from people in voting lines, waiting ridiculously long times to vote uh, and making it a crime and doing other things to oppose a president who is black just because he's black from the start of his presidency, not able to escape those wicked seeds being planted because even now when he has power and there's a platform given to him and microphones given to him to speak, he's speechless, seemingly demented, not able to gather his thoughts, thoughts and express himself. Nothing to laugh at at all, even by his enemies, but instead something to take notice of and realize that wickedness can't be outrun any more than righteousness can. You do the right thing when we do the right things. Eventually, the righteousness of that will overtake us, surround us, and crop up for us. And in the same way, when we do the wrong things, wicked things, you may outrun it for a while, may even forget about it, but that weed will crop, crop up. Not the good kind you can burn, the wicked kind that you can't outrun and control. And it'll crop up on you when you least expect it. And the devil will be standing right there as the curtain gets ripped back. The veil of it all being secretly hidden from a public society is ripped back. And everyone can see it plainly um, that the emperor has no clothes. And then in this case, the emperor is not one singular person, but a group of people who 
or seem to be at a stage in life where they would sit back and enjoy all the money they raked in through their power over the decades, but instead clinging to that power desperately, even though their health is clearly failing, whether it's mental or otherwise, uh, it's for the world to see. And yet in American society, we pretend it's not there when you have a certain complexion for protection, then all your wickednesses just get sort of glossed over because you're not dark enough for people to notice it. Verse 24, or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. So Solomon is looking ahead, maybe prophetically or just saying in general, when the people slip away, slip away in the wickedness um, by uh, not being righteous, not acting according to what they know righteousness is, then um, when those times happen and people realize it, that they backslidden and pray, seeking forgiveness for it, verse 25, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. So he's reflecting back now, Solomon that is, on um, the hope of what they are looking at as being called the promised land, an area that was already occupied by people who are still fighting to hold on to it even to the time of um, Solomon's time that we're up to, but have been consistently since then. And some would argue even since then, even to this modern time, 2023, seeking to still have control of the land they were in before Solomon and his forefathers uh, occupied and colonized it. But however you want to look at it, that same land, Solomon is praying that the people, when they come to themselves and realize and repent, that God hears it. Verse 27, 26, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you. When they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. So Solomon is saying, and again, in a prophetic sense, or maybe in a general sense, when people realize the repercussions of their sins, it, whether it be the planet, the weather, reacting to them and uh, in drought and famine, that people realize that it is tied to human behavior. And not, and maybe even in, in, in modern times, it would be considered um, human-influenced climate change that's affecting the weather and the climate and the extremes that are clearly being seen around the world, even if people want to deny them. Those people, same people that deny them have made it to the point where they have the wealth to have bunkers for themselves to seemingly face the changes that are happening. But those bunkers could end up just being tombs because Jesus, one of Jesus' prophecies is that some of the same people, people caught up in the same times are going to be crying out for the mountains to fall on them and for the hills to cover them um, in those same desperate times. So those bunkers that are, looked, are sought out for to be their salvation from these times could actually just be their graves. And people don't even realize it. They spend all kinds of money to try and set them up for themselves when they could really just be making headstones. Verse um, 40, 27. Then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people of Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given your people as an inheritance. 
inheritance. So Solomon is, is saying when the people fall on those hard times, or when the hard times fall on the people for their ways, then when they realize it and repent and pray toward that place, that temple, then that God would always hear it. Again, these uh, the word forever was used, but uh, we see it, even though it's in the Bible and it was given by a patriarch and it's there, it couldn't have been uh, gospel truth. One, Jesus didn't say it. And two, it didn't come to pass. The temple is gone. The same forever temple is gone. Verse 28, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land or their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is. So Solomon is basically saying, come what may against them, whenever it does, when it arises, when the people face whatever terror it is they're facing. Verse 29, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all, your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple. So Solomon is saying, whatever position you're in, whatever situation has arisen against you in your life, when you realize it, when it comes to your attention and you reach out in your hands in prayer to God toward that temple. Again, temple's gone, but up until the point where we're reading about it, it's brand new. Verse 30, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. So Solomon is praying that God will examine the hearts of the people when they pray toward the temple, knowing that God alone can read the hearts of people. Verse 31, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. So Solomon is praying that God examines the hearts and passes judgment accordingly, one by one, that the people can fear the same way their forefathers feared God Almighty, or the entity they're identifying with as God Almighty. Verse 32, moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray in this temple. So Solomon is now not just praying for the people of the 12 so-called so 12 tribes of Israel, but also for the foreigners who are intermingled among them. Because remember, from the time of the Exodus, and probably from before then, the people are identified as a mixed multitude who left Africa during the Exodus narrative, letting us know it's not one homogenous type of people who are in this crowd, but a diverse mixture, variety of complexions in plain English that are um, congregated here that form the so-called people. And not only that, Solomon is praying for the mixed multitude, not only because there's a mixed multitude among the people, but even among his own family in his um, marriages his 700 plus wives and thousands of side pieces. Solomon has uh, married and dates the rainbow, as we'd say in plain English in modern times. And so he's including the variety of people, the diversity in his prayers also. Verse 33, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, 
and that they may know that this temple which I built is called by your name. So Solomon is saying and praying that no matter who it is, foreign or domestic, praying toward God and the temple he's erecting toward God, when we pray toward the temple, that God hears our prayers. First, whether we're of his religion that he's born into or another altogether. Verse 34, when your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward the city which you've chosen and the temple which I built for your name. So Solomon is continuing to, to pray for masses. He's even praying for the military now at this point. Verse 35, then hear from heaven their place, I'm sorry, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So he's saying when the army goes out righteously and prays towards you also, hear their prayer too. Verse 36, when they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. So Solomon is saying when the military that he just prayed for also sins, since everyone sins, when they sin with their authority and get taken captive and become POWs, for instance, prisoners of war to other in, in, uh, um, armies, and they pray about it and realize it. Verse 37, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they, have been, when they, where they were carried captive and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we've sinned, we've done wrong, and have committed wickedness. So Solomon is recognizing that even though there are people in uniform paid and enlisted to represent the country, his country, his nation, and any nation, they still fall into sin also. Corruption is not, they're not exempt from corruption. And when they reap the benefits of that corruption by getting captured in some cases, becoming prisoners of war, taken captive by the enemy. When those things happen and they reflect on it and realize, you know what? They did some wicked things themselves. Perhaps the other prisoners of war that they've taken captive, waterboarding, for instance, and other sorts of torturous things that people do in the name of patriotic, patriotic uh, righteousness, but are actually wickedness. When people do those things and realize now it's cropping up to catch them, they're reaping what they've sown. When they realize it, pray about it and confess it, not sweep it under a rug, but realize it and confess it and make supplication for it. That's trying to make it right. It's apologizing for it, repenting for it. And just like you would um, if you're caught stealing something, if you had to pay um, reparations or what, descendants of slavery are owed. Um, I forget what it's called when you have to pay it uh, in, a, in a court case. Um, restitution. So um, once you realize that, realize you're wrong and pay that restitution, then you can find that forgiveness, but not by sweeping it on the rug. But um, verse 39, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So Solomon is saying when people realize we're wrong and repent and pray about it and try to make it right, then that God hears it and accepts it. Verse 40, now my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Solomon is praying that he's heard 
and their prayers made toward the temple there that he's built now are heard by God. Verse 41, now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. Yeah, and you and the ark of your strength, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in goodness. So Solomon is dedicating a prayer to God, basically saying, now take your place in your place in this temple now built for your name, God Almighty. Verse 42, O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. So when it says your anointed is capitalized there, um, he is presumably praying for himself. But if you're thinking prophetically, he'd be saying Jesus is that anointed one. That's what Christos means in the Greek to English translation. It means the anointed one. Um, or that's what he is represented by the Messiah, which Jesus would be would come to be in time. Um, so he may be praying for that anointed one also, Jesus. Or he's praying for himself in this instance. Um, but he's also praying that God remembers uh, mercy, the mercies of David, meaning the mercy shown David in the sins that he committed and in the ways he tried to act righteously. Sins being the adulterous things, the murderous things, the massacres, the deceitful lying ways that David showed, um, but still was shown mercy. And he's asking that the people who um, seek God basically in the same ways be shown those same mercies. Um, that's the, what Solomon has said as he's dedicated the temple with this chapter. Um, but that was the last verse in this chapter, so that's where we'll we end this reading. As always, I thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth and hope to join me again. Hope it's a blessing for you. Hope this finds you well. Love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.